the things that Paul is speaking here to the church in Thessalonica. And uh, this is the second book he's written to them uh, within just a few months of each other. He wrote the first one and then just about three or four months later wrote the second one to kind of clarify some things. Somebody had taken some of his early teaching from the first epistle and had kind of contaminated it and caused some false doctrine to creep in. And uh, so Paul writes to correct it and to exhort the church uh, there in Thessalonica. And uh, I want to spend a little bit of time this morning in trying to share with you some of the exhortation um, that Paul gives to the church to try to be a help uh, in, in, I think, to be real frank with you, that these, these things that Paul says are so much uh, to be applied in the day we live. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Let's look in verse number 1. <coughs> Chapter 2, verse number 1. Paul writes this, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto Him, <clears throat> that you be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come uh, a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of uh, perdition. Father, once again, we come to you, we ask for the next few moments to uh, encourage us and teach us some things through your word. And may they help us to be more watchful, to be more diligent in the time that we have on this earth, to be the type of testimony we should be, but Lord, also to be the type of servant that we should be. So guide and direct our steps, we pray, as we take a few moments to look into the pages of your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's very important to know that Paul is addressing the error of the fact that some people were telling them that the uh, return of the Lord Jesus Christ had already happened, that they were already in the time period of the day of the Lord where it talks about the wrath of God being poured out on the sin of man, which will happen. By the way, let me just say this in case you're not aware of this. The Bible teaches quite clearly that it is by God's long-suffering and mercy that you and I are enjoying this period of time from Calvary until the time of His return. And the reason for that is, he, even though there is some, some judgments that He puts on men for their sin, it is always tempered right now with His mercy. If you'll remember back to the story of David in the Old Testament when he uh, numbered Israel, something he wasn't supposed to do. God had told them not to number Israel. By that, it just simply meant to go by and take a consensus of how many men of war they had and what was their military might and their military strength because God wanted them to depend upon Him for their defense, not upon their own might and their own power. And David numbered them, and God came to him, and he said, you get to choose what your chastening is going to be. And he said, you can be uh, suffer three years of pestilence of the land and famine, or you can be overrun of your enemies by three months. Or he said, you can be under the hand of the Lord for three days. And David came to uh, the idea, he said, I, I want to be under the hand of the Lord for three days. Because he said this, he said, I know that the Lord is merciful. And so God sent the angel of the Lord across Israel and slew 70,000 men of war. 
as the angel of the Lord came to Jerusalem, uh, the Bible says that David was on Mount Moriah, and he looked up and he saw the angel of the Lord with his sword outstretched over Jerusalem. Could you imagine seeing something like that? And he knew that the judgment of God was getting ready to fall on the city of Jerusalem. And God, God uh, cried out and said, it, it is enough. It is enough. And understand that while God sent His judgment, it was tempered with His mercy. We're living in a time period where God's judgment still is there, but it is always tempered with His mercy. There's coming a time, there's coming a day, where the wrath of God will be poured out on the sin of man, the Bible says, without mixture. It's not going to be diluted by His mercy. It's going to have the full wrath, the full vengeance of God. Now, it's going to be during the end times, after the rapture happens, during the tribulation period. And, and these people were confused by that. They thought that this had already happened. They were under persecution. And they thought, well, we're in the tribulation period right now. So Paul is addressing this. And it's important for you to know that the exhortation that he's giving to them is specifically really for that particular event. That uh, this is going to... Uh, 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 he's exhorting them that this is going to take place, but it hasn't taken place yet. But I want us to look at the exhortation itself. Because no matter what the trial is in our lives, this exhortation is applicable to us. So let's look at some things here, first of all, that he starts with. <clears throat> he gives a warning in verse number 3. He says, Let no man deceive you... By any means. Now, in this case, he goes on to say uh, that the deception they had suffered was this problem with the end times. But can I charge us today that we as God's people need to be careful that we are not deceived by any means. I was uh, here the other day uh, with Brother Mark. We were back in the PA booth doing some work. And I showed him a, a video of uh, a church. Uh, uh, I hate to even call it a church. I don't even know if I want to call it a church. In fact, we talked about, Brother Mark said, well, Pastor, why don't you show a clip of that to the church so that they understand. And I thought, Brother Mark, I don't even know if I want to show it in church. It's so bad. But it was supposed to be the greatest Easter service ever. That was the way they titled this. Is a large church uh, out in Oklahoma. And um, just looking at probably less than maybe a minute or so of just clips that they took from this and put on YouTube. They had, they had uh, supposedly this set of, of hell and, and demons. And, and here I'm thinking, okay, this is the resurrection story. And, and the, the fact that the Lord rose victorious over the grave. And, and most of the play that they did on the, on the stage of this church, uh, and I don't even want to call it a church. I hate to even call it a church. But most of what they did on that platform uh, what took place in hell. And I thought, why are we glorifying this thing? And then they, they I'm going to tell you this. They, 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 um, I'll share some of it with you. They, they got to the place where this figure that was supposed to be Jesus, apparently, was talking with, with Satan, and Satan tricks him and overpowers him and takes him to the cross. Can I tell you, that is not what Scripture says. Satan would never trick Jesus. And then the figure that they had portraying the Lord Jesus Christ in that portion of it was a female, was a lady. Folks, they touted this as the greatest Easter service ever. 
they had uh, some, some women, some female ladies on the platform. And um, they were supposed to, I guess, be part of the, 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 the devils of hell. And they sang a, some kind of a rap or a song that talked about the size of their posteriors. And I thought, in a church? And then they showed a clip of the pastor. And the pastor was saying, uh, several years ago I became a pastor of this church, and I didn't even know what a pastor did. And I thought, then why did you become a pastor? He said, I never preached an Easter service, so I wasn't going to start now. And I said, we got to have a play. And then he made this statement. He said, but I don't want it to be just the cut and dry Jesus coming out of the grave. It's got to be spectacular. Can I tell you this? There's nothing more spectacular than the biblical account of Christ rising victorious over death, hell, and the grave for the purpose of saving a man's soul. And if people cannot get excited over the sufficiency of the biblical account of the resurrection, who are we to add to it or take away from it in his sense? And he touted this as the greatest Easter service ever. And folks, I'm telling you that we're living in some times where, and I told Brother Mark, I said, the sad thing is we in these kind of churches are oblivious sometimes to these things because we would never watch them to begin with. We would never tune into that church or, or find this place. And we don't understand what is taking place. And, and, and by the droves, people who are sincerely seeking God come to a place like that and they think that because of the spectacular, they had pyrotechnics going off, they had flames going up in the church, and they thought, boy, this is really something. Yeah, it was really something all right, but it wasn't biblical. And it wasn't of Christ, and it wasn't of the Lord. And I say all that to say this, folks. We're living in a time where men, even good men and women, good women, are prone to being deceived. They are prone to being led away. They're prone to be shaken in their faith. We live in a time period where we get bored with Scripture. It appalls me when somebody comes to a church that is teaching and preaching doctrine and the Word of God is being taught line upon line and precept upon precept, and then they leave the service and say, well, that's just a dead, dying church. Can I tell you this? When we're being fed by the Spirit of God and when the Word of God is going forth in power, that's what a Christian soul needs. By a dead church, I guess what they mean is we don't have all the, the flashy uh, gizmos on the platform and all the, the crazy stuff that goes on in the name of churches today and in the name of worship today. Paul warns the church in Thessalonica just, just three or four months earlier, he had told them that they should take comfort in the fact that the Lord was going to come and that, that there was going to be judgment on those that were being persecuting them. And already, just in a few months, they were deceived. There were some false teachers that were coming in. And so he tells them, he says, let no man deceive you. And then he makes this phrase in verse number 3, by any means. By any means. Now, it's easy for me to get up here today and to say, there's a church out in Oklahoma, and to explain their service. And we all sit here with mouths agape and awe and think, uh, that could never happen. And boy, surely if I saw something like that, I would never be deceived by something like that. It's so uh, in your face and so over the top. But notice Paul says, by any means. By any means. 
Because the deceit that Satan does does not always come in the form of a church in Oklahoma. Sometimes it comes in very, very subtle ways. Notice what he says as we get to verse number 2. He says that ye be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit. Now, this is not the Holy Spirit of God. It's a small s here. But can I tell you this? There are people that I have heard their testimonies, I have researched, and some of them I've even talked to that used to be Mormons, some of them that used to be in some charismatic, uh, word of faith type churches, that will go so far as to tell you, and they were saved out of those things, they will go so far as to tell you that when they were going through some of the speaking in the tongues and some of the things that they were dealing with, they will tell you there was something real that happened inside of them. And there was a, a Spirit there, but it just was not the Holy Spirit of God. There are Mormons I've talked to that have, that have come out of Mormonism that would say, uh, when we were giving our testimony, which, which means a little different thing in their, in their religion, but when they do their testimony where they state that Joseph Smith is a prophet and that the uh, Book of Mormon is true, when they were giving those things that they would have these, they call them warm, fuzzy feelings inside. And I've heard people that were saved out of that say, uh, say that this was as real as real could be, that there was something in me that was doing this. Paul said, I don't care if it's even a spirit that comes in you. Don't be soon shaken in mind. And don't be troubled. Be careful. If there is something that, that we... And I, I, here's how we word it today in our Baptist circles, alright? We say, well, the Lord told me. Or the Lord spoke to me. Or the Lord led me. Folks, if it does not line up with this book, He did not talk to you. He did not lead you. And you are going to be deceived every time that it goes contrary to this book. And Paul exhorts this church. He says, listen, you need to be careful. You need to be, you need to be aware of these things. Be not soon shaken in mind. Notice he says this, nor troubled, uh, nor, or be troubled, neither by spirit, notice this, or nor by word. Nor by word. I, I'll tell you this, I have, I've had a number of people over the years that have come and said, uh, Pastor, I'm trying to deal with an atheist or an agnostic. And I, I've, I've reasoned with them till I'm blue in the face. What can I do? Quit reasoning with them. Give them Scripture. Give them truth. We spend so much of our time debating amongst ourselves and amongst people who are non-believers, and we try to make logical arguments. We try to make arguments that make sense in our minds. Can I tell you this? The Bible does not say that our logic is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It does not say that our philosophy or our ideas or our opinions are quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It says that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and will pierce even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and even the intents of the heart. This book is powerful. Don't be swayed. Don't be deceived. Anchor yourself to it. There are going to come times where you're going to say, Boy, I think God's leading me, and it's contrary to Scripture. He's not. 
There's going to come some times where there are going to be people that will, by their word, have strong arguments. I'm amazed at how many times... I was watching a, a clip the other day of a, of a young man. He, I say young man. He was probably in his mid-twenties. His dad was a, a, a preacher, a pastor of a church that's probably not quite the way we are, but I'll tell you this, people could have gotten saved in that church. Can I put it that way? There was enough of the doctrine of salvation that was right that they could have gotten saved in that church. And this young man had turned from religion and turned from God and says, I am now an atheist, and not only am I an atheist, but I go out here trying to refute all of the problems with Christianity and with the Bible. And he has all these, he goes around and he lectures, and he has all these arguments and all these logical statements. Can I tell you this? There are people that are saved, that have trusted Christ as their Savior, that know they're on their way to heaven, that because they've not grounded themselves in this book, will be swayed by an argument or a philosophy of man. So much so that when they do hear the truth, they reject the truth and say, that's not what I've been taught. When you come to Scripture and say, here it is in Scripture, I don't care what the Scripture says. I have heard this, and that's what I believe. Paul said, folks, there's going to be some deceit going on. He says, Be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, now notice this, nor by letter, as from us, as the day of Christ is at hand. Now understand something. Paul is the one of the one of the last two apostles, I believe, that were able to write scripture. John John was around the same time period uh, when he wrote Revelation. And I believe John was the last apostle to die. When he died, the revelation of God ceased. We have all that God has for us. We're not to add anything to it. We're not to take anything away from it. So when Paul was writing, when Paul was speaking to these churches, he was doing so under inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and every word of it was scriptural, and every word of it was literally from God Himself. Now, notice what he says here. He says, Be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us. In other words, it's not from us, but it's pretending to be from us. We're, you say, well, that, that was to them, and, and what had happened is there was a, a counterfeiter that wrote a letter in between these two letters and tried to put it off as Paul's writing. And that happened in, in the church of Thessalonica. But folks, we have that same thing going on today. We have men that will stand in pulpits with thousands of people in stadiums that will stand up and say, I've gotten a word of the Lord. And I've heard this statement literally verbatim come out of their mouth. Now, you're not going to find this in Scripture. Folks, the first time somebody says that in a service you're sitting in, close your Bible and get out of the building. Now, you're not going to find this in Scripture, but God gave this to me to give to you. That's somebody who's pretending to be a writer of Scripture. That's someone who's a counterfeit. That's someone whose only purpose is to bring deceit and to cause you to be blinded, to cause you to be swayed in your faith. 
So what are we to do? Paul tells them, he exhorts them, he says, folks, you've got to be careful here. Be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter from us, as that day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. What do we do then? In the face of all this false teacher and doctrine stuff that's going around in so-called churches today, that, by the way, are vying, they're, they're, they're trying to grab a hold of by their books, by their television programs, by their radio programs. They're trying to gain your mind and your heart to be drawn into their false doctrine. That's their goal. You say, Pastor, why would they do that? Because it gives them more money. It gives them more money. So what do we do in face of this? Let's look down a little further into the chapter, if you will. I'm going to give you a few things here from verse number 15. Therefore, therefore, brethren, stand fast. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school. Stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught. Now, I want to, I want to stop for a few moments here and, and spend a minute on this. We explained a little bit of this in Sunday school. I want to explain a little bit here. In order for you and I to be steadfast, it's not good enough for us to just be steadfast and be wrong on it. Um, years ago, and I shared this a number of years ago, uh, I've shared this a little while ago in our church, but a number of years ago, back when travel was done by train, uh, more than uh, other types of, uh, of transportation. They had the old steam engines. And every so often they have to stop and fill water tanks up and take on coal and that sort of thing. And they tried to time them at the big cities so they wouldn't have to stop any more than necessary. And there was a young lady and her baby that were traveling for the very first time. She was very nervous and traveling across the country on the train. And she was so nervous that she was going to miss her stop because she had never been on one before that Every time the conductor would pass by, she would ask him, are we, are we at my stop yet? I, I want to make sure. I'm afraid I'm going to miss my stop. And over and over and over again, she kept pestering the conductor. And the conductor said, ma'am, I, I, I know this line. I, I, I promise you, uh, when it gets time for you to get off, I will come back here and make it uh, an effort to, to get back here and tell you that it's your stop. But she was nervous. She saw the conductor was very busy and got distracted, and she was afraid he was going to forget. There was a businessman that was sitting next to her. And he said, ma'am, he said, I'm a, I'm a traveling salesman. He said, I travel this line literally every day of my life. He said, I know every stop on here as well or better than that conductor does. And he said, you can rest easy. I promise you when we get to your stop, I'll make sure you get off. So she took some comfort in that, and she finally drifted off to sleep. After a while, the man woke her up, and it was kind of quiet and dark. And she, he said, ma'am, he said, uh, we've stopped at your stop. It's time to get off. And she gathered her baby and her belongings and thanked the man and got off the train. After a few moments, the train took off and uh, was going on down the track. And a few minutes down the track, the conductor was walking back through the car and asked the man, said, where's the lady that was just sitting here a a few moments ago? And he said, well, I knew you were busy and you you were distracted and you, you forgot that it was her stop. So I let her know that that was her stop so she could get off. And she was, uh, the, the, the conductor was just horrified by that. And he said, sir, we've got a tremendous blizzard outside tonight. 
what you don't know is that we've burned more coal and we've used more water than we should have. And we had to stop at a way station that's along the way and pick up more water and more coal in order to make it to the next town. He said, there is nothing there but a water tower and a bin of coal. They went to the next town and they next morning they sent a group out to go look for this lady and her baby. They found her in the snow, frozen to death with her baby with her. And I share that story to say this. The, the businessman was very sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. And when Paul exhorts this church to be steadfast, it's not enough to simply be steadfast, but to be steadfast on that which is right doctrine. To be steadfast on the things that we can look in Scripture and say, here's why I believe this, it says it right there in the Scriptures. Not because the pastor got up and taught it. By the way, you're, you're in a church where this pastor longs to be right on Scripture, and I promise you that. But I will tell you right now, there are times I will miss it. And I would tell you in everything, even that I teach from this pulpit, I expect every single one of you to go to Scripture and find out, is that right? Is that true? Because I'm fallible. Paul tells them here in verse number 15, he says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast. And I would say this, we need to know that we are standing fast in the doctrine of God's Word, in the truth that this book teaches. If you're standing fast on what you have heard taught in a pulpit somewhere, or in a classroom, or in some kind of college, or in some type of a, uh, a seminar or conference, and that is your basis, that is your foundation, or that is your authority for what you hold to, can I tell you, it is a crumbling and a false foundation. It will always, always have problems. When it comes to being steadfast, Paul is very clear to them. As he says further on, "...and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle." These are not traditions that man taught. These were traditions that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, taught. These are things that were based on Scripture. And even though the word traditions is used here, it is not in the sense of taking what man thinks about something. But it is used in the sense of the authority of the Holy Spirit of God inspiring Paul to speak and to write the things that he did to this church. And he said, be steadfast in them. Be steadfast in that word. Be steadfast in that writing. Don't be shaken in it. Hold fast to it. Grit your teeth. Don't, don't let loose of it. Embrace it. Notice what else he says here. <coughs> he says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts. We need to be steadfast. And secondly, when we are steadfast in the doctrine of God's Word, can I tell you this, it will bring a great comfort to your heart. You know how easy it is for me to be able to get up and preach the Bible when I'm preaching it? And saying it's what God said. There are things I have to tell people that sometimes people don't like to hear. 
There's some things I tell people that, real frankly, I don't like to hear. But it's in the book. And you know how much easier it is to be able to say, folks, this is what God said about it, than to try to justify my opinion on it? Or to try to convince somebody that I'm right and they're wrong? I don't ever have to try to do that. I don't have to enter into debates with people on truth because it's not my opinion. All I have to do is keep pointing back to, we'll take it up with God. He's the one that said it. It's right there. If there's a debate, if there's an argument, take it up with Him. I don't have time for debate. I don't have time for argument. I'll tell you what the Bible says. I'll do what I can to help you understand it. But it's not my opinion. It's not my truth. Every once in a while, somebody will leave the service and say, Pastor, that was a great message. I'll be like, well, uh, it wasn't mine. (coughs) It was His. If it's a great message, give God thanks for it. Because He's the one that wrote it to us. He's the one that's given it to us. Comfort your hearts. And then I want you to notice this. Establish you in every good work. Establish you in every good work. We're to be steadfast. We're to take comfort in our foundation of Scripture. And then thirdly, we are to establish ourselves in work. We're to establish it. We're to make it a habit of our life. We're to make it the natural thing that we do. <clears throat> and then notice what he says after he says, establish in every good work. He says, and work. <laughs> you get the mindset here that he wants them to work. Now, within the context of this, I do have to be fair. Within the context of this, what had happened is because they believed that the coming of the Lord had happened, or that the, the, the day of the Lord was, was soon to be, uh, because of this doctrinal error, they were quitting their jobs and saying, it's time for the Lord to come back, and they were just waiting for the Lord. And they were, they were not working, they were not making a living. And Paul's, Paul, when he tells them to work here, is dealing with that particular issue. But can I tell you, that same exhortation applies today. Because the truth is, we know He's coming back too. And if we're not careful, we will sit back and say, I'm, I'm just praying for the Lord to return. I hope you are, but I hope you're busy while you're waiting. Because there's two things that Paul tells this church to do. He says, number one, be watchful. Number two, be working. Be watchful, be working. Be watchful, be working. Folks, we're living in a time, and I wanted to take a message this morning to warn us, to encourage us not to be deceived. Because we are living in a time where even people that are sincere are becoming sincerely wrong because they're deceived. They're looking at ministries, they're looking at men, they're reading books, they're listening to interviews, and they're following after these things. We need to be wise. We need to test the spirits. We need to look at the Scriptures. There have been a number of things in recent days and months that have come about that people texted or called or wrote and said, Pastor, what do you think about this? Revival or awakenings taking place, different things. And on the surface and in the initial stages of it, you think, boy, that might be a good thing. But what determines whether it's good or not, whether it's of God or not, is not, is there a lot of people doing it? Is there a great excitement being built around it? 
but is it in line with what this book says? See, we seem to equate enthusiasm, energy, excitement with spirituality and with God's Spirit moving. I will say this. There are times when God's Spirit moves. It is exciting. But excitement is not always the Holy Spirit moving. Be not deceived. Be not deceived. I don't know how long God will ever have me pastor this church. I hope it's for a good many years yet to come. But I have no guarantee. I have, I have no guarantee that I have another day left on this earth. If this church ever had to call another pastor, I would charge you, be not deceived. Be not deceived. There are going to be those that are out there that are going to come in, and they're going to look good, and they're going to sound good. In fact, in Scripture, they're known as wolves in sheep's clothing. You know what the problem is with wolves in sheep's clothing? They look like sheep. And there's a lot of people who embrace things because they look like sheep. And the reason they follow after their false teaching is because they've not delved into this book. They've not poured themselves into it. They've not learned it. They've not understood the doctrine of it. Folks, if I could exhort you in one thing today from Paul's message to the church at Thessalonica, be not deceived by any means. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed. (coughs) The message has not been really to the lost, to those that are not saved here today. But if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I don't know if I died right now that I'd go to heaven.